But I believe that by overwhelming majority in all the Americas, you and I in the long run, and if it be necessary, you and I will act together to protect, to defend by every means at our command. Welcome to the History in Motion podcast, where we discuss how leaders and their decisions shape the world we live in today. Welcome to episode five of the History in Motion podcast. My name is Richie, and I'm joined by my co-host, Paul, and today we're going to be taking it back, all the way back to the Crusades. We're going to discuss the early Crusades at a high level, dive into religious violence, and focus on our discussion of Saladin, a very intriguing historical figure who led the Islamic forces against the Crusaders to take back Jerusalem during the Second Crusade. Specifically, we're going to discuss narratives centered on his merciful nature compared to his crusading counterparts. So without further ado, let's get into it. So today we're going to be talking about Saladin's decision to not take revenge after taking back Jerusalem from the crusading forces. And I'm using air quotes um, because, you know, what does it really mean when we say revenge when we're talking about the Crusades, violence, kind of this capitulation between forces, which, you know, we'll get into in, in uh, throughout the episode. But when we talk about revenge, especially in this context, when the crusading forces first took Jerusalem, they massacred, you know, a vast majority of the population. Uh, when Saladin retook the city, he didn't seek revenge in the same way. Ultimately, we want to try to understand why he decided to show, you know, quote unquote, mercy. And the caveat there is, you know, when we say mercy, we don't necessarily mean total mercy. I think it would be more apt to say he was more merciful than his Christian or crusading counterparts. But before we jump into that, I want to provide a bit of context around the crusades. I'm going to try to cover 200 years, you know, about a dozen crusades in a few minutes and jump into the first three crusades up until Saladin's death. Uh, So when we talk about the Crusades as a whole, we're talking about a series of religious wars initiated and sometimes directed by the church in the medieval period. Uh, Most commonly, when people discuss the Crusades, they're talking about those which are directed towards the Holy Land. Uh, So this is roughly an area located between the Mediterranean Sea and the eastern bank of the Jordan River. Traditionally, it's kind of synonymous with the biblical land of Israel and uh, within the region of Palestine. So the term Holy Land usually refers to the territory between, you know, that state of Israel, the Palestinian territories, Western Jordan, parts of Southern Lebanon, Southwestern Syria. um, And it's regarded as, you know, holy amongst the three major religions, um, which is, uh, you know, Judaism, Christianity and Islam. So historically, just looking at this, Richie, just looking at this, uh, this map, right, just the absolute scale of it, right, is is quite staggering. Like you just think like even catching a flight from, from London to, to Tel Aviv or to Jerusalem today, it's, it's not a short, a short trip. Right. And, and these guys are coming with very primitive ways from the middle of France, the North of France into Germany across lands that, you know, maybe the maps aren't dra- drawn perfectly. And just, yeah. it's just like, there's no street signs. It's just, you keep going <laughs> and you're asking people, you know, where's the Holy land. Right. Yeah, it's pretty nuts to see, especially like in the path of like the first crusade here that's marked by the the purple line and how it kind of jettisoned all the way down from France into Rome over the Byzantine Empire, 
like that's yeah I, I maybe we should get some numbers on this later but like in terms of how much land they actually covered a bit interesting perspective and mm-hmm. how long that march actually took there's a great line i think in the movie kingdom of heaven which kind of talks about this period of time and people ask oh how where's the holy land and the joke is always you go to where the men speak italian and then you keep going until they speak something else <laughs> which i guess kind of works in this context i love that well, okay, so I think like, when, so again, like when we're talking about the Crusades as a whole, you know, um, it's safe to assume we're talking about the period between 1095 and 1291, um, which were intended to recover Jerusalem and its surrounding area from Islamic rule. So you can see there, uh, Jerusalem's kind of in the bottom right-hand corner um, of the map. And historically speaking, you know, dozens of Crusades were fought, I guess, depending on the historian, they're kind of segmented and then categorized differently. Um, but the focal point, you know, these are vastly important parts of European and Islamic history, I guess, in, in both veins, in terms of how they're covered and how important they are to, uh, you know, regional and political affiliations, how kingdoms are made or, you know, unmade, depending on the crusade that you're talking about. And since there are over, you know, um, you know, a handful of crusades over two centuries, each discrete with their own sets of circumstances and context. It's important to paint a broad picture of those crusades that led up to our discussion, which will concentrate mainly on the first, second, and the third, uh, up until Saladin's decision to be more merciful and then his death uh, in the third, during the third crusades. Furthermore, I think it's important to note this is not a very, like, quote-unquote, user-friendly historical event site. You just look at the map, right? Like, <laughs> pretty complicated-looking. I myself, as you know, someone who studied history, finds this quite a difficult kind of uh, series of historical events difficult to engage with because there's so many stakeholders. It's cutting across so many kingdoms and countries. It's vast. It's di- it's. I don't want to say vastly different, but it's it's different enough from the modern world where things can get kind of confusing in terms of like the regions we're talking about, the parties that are at play. So if you're trying to understand, you know, the Crusades and want to put it in a neat little box with a bow on it, which, you know, is typically quite difficult <laughs> to do. And, you know, most academics and historians would tell you not to do that because, it, you know, it's kind of short-sighted. But for the amateur historian, people who are just trying to learn, I think it's a very useful tool. There's a quote by Henry Freeman who wrote the book, The Crusades from Beginning to End. And the quote, you know, it hits it hits pretty hard. So I'll read it out. And I think this is kind of a good keepsake for those people. If, you know, the Crusades does come up in a conversation, you can kind of pull on this. <laughs> but it's, you know, how much were the Crusades uh, an aggressive act of Christian fanaticism? And how much were they a defensive military approach intended to check the spread of Islam and reclaim Christian territory is still debated. What cannot be debated is that 1.7 million ordinary people, and some estimates go as low as 1 million, and some go as high as 9 both Christian and Muslim died as a result of the Crusades. And that loss of life cannot be considered chivalric in the slightest. And I think like relative to the population at the time and the year 1200, it's estimated the population was 393 million. So on a high end, like if you're losing 9 million people to the Crusades, like that is a significant portion of people dying because of these religious wars. Yeah, and you think too, but like... This is around a time when there's plagues going on, there's famine, there's droughts. You know, 9 million excess deaths due to a religious war is not something the world can really handle. 
and it and it kind of goes to you know how big human capital was you know back in those days you have a, if a country goes through a plague and loses 10 or 20% of its population and its men who are of soldiering age for lack of a better term you know now you become vulnerable and so like i think the scale of it is huge but also the risk right like sending some of your best knights the king of england for the third crusade like to these lands to fight for your god you know and i think we've talked about this offline but really the the stamp if you put a stamp on this it's your god is better than my god or my god is better than your god um but yeah this nine million people is is on a it's a level that like you can't even really comprehend and, and even kind of looking at this map right you can you can see like we look at spain and we can see that you know they were muslim lands in the south for a long time and then as time goes on you know you'll see the growth of the ottoman empire moving more in towards where the byzantines and serbia are today but at the end of the day like there's a there's always going to be expansionist stuff but it's this weird unifier of religion versus where you know france and germany and england and spain have been at each other's throat for will be at each other's throat for centuries but they're able to all come together for this and i think that's a good kind of point too to think of like how how saladin's kind of saw the same thing right like he he doesn't see it as a bunch of different Muslim lands. He sees it as the yellow, which we see here as just, these are Muslim lands and we're fighting against, you know, yellow versus purple in this situation. Well, hundred percent. I think you nailed it. One with the, you know, my God is better than your God is more or less what <laughs> Freeman saying in this quote. And I think it's a, it's a topic and a kind of theme that we'll touch on later, which is like this idea of, you know, a common enemy and how, you know, strategically speaking, it's beneficial like when you have this other that you can kind of direct you know your you know where they have all this infighting in europe and it's like well no now we have a bigger threat that is impeding and encroaching on our sovereignty we need to come together you know as uh purveyors of the christian religion to you know fight and repel these quote-unquote islamic barbarians from our lands right like it's <laughs> And it's a super important theme here that I think not only is relevant for this particular conversation, but I think, you know, you can see echoes of it throughout history. <laughs> it's always <laughs> easy to point blame at the other. And I think, you know, I'm sure it wouldn't take us very long to come up with some common threads, even in the modern era. I'm, su I'm sure we could think of dozens, you know, if you gave us a couple minutes. But I think that's a good, like, turning point. You know, we can jump into our discussion of the Crusades, specifically the First Crusade. So this is from 1095 to 1102. It was a military campaign by Western European forces to recapture the city of Jerusalem and the Holy Land from Muslim control. So around 60,000 soldiers and at least half of them uh, non-combatants were involved in the First Crusade. And they set off for their quest in 1095. This was after campaigns in Asia Minor and in the Middle East. Great cities such as Nicaea and Antioch were captured, recaptured, sorry, and then the real objective, Jerusalem itself. It was conceived by Pope Urban II following an appeal from the Byzantine Empire. Uh, Alexis Komnisos I, uh, the crusade was relatively successful with Christian forces taking control of Jerusalem on uh, the 15th of July, 1099. And this was essentially a pretty smart strategic decision by Pope Urban to kind of unify various Christian sects across Europe at the time to repel, you know, the infidels. So back to that idea of, you know, common enemies 
this other that we've kind of established as our focal point to, you know, come together against. And by infidels, he really means the Seljuk Turks who are growing their sphere of influence in the East at this time. So the final assault on Jerusalem began on July 13th. On the 15th, the final push was launched at both ends of the city, and eventually in a rampart of the northern wall, Jerusalem was captured. In the ensuing panic, the defenders abandoned the walls of the cities at both ends, allowing the, allowing the crusaders to finally enter. The massacre that followed, the capture of Jerusalem, has attained particular notoriety in history books as a quote-unquote juxtaposition of extreme violence and anguished faith. The eyewitness accounts from the crusaders themselves leave little doubt that there was a great slaughter in the aftermath of the siege. Nevertheless, there are some historians propose that the scale of the massacre has been exaggerated in later medieval sources, which, again, I think it's always good to have a critical eye when you're reading ancient or, you know, really old historical sources, right? Like there is very little firsthand or primary sources that you have to kind of rely on. And there's no real like academic vetting of those things to ensure how accurate they actually are. And I think there's a huge, like, who's, who's telling the history here, right? Like the well, Christians don't want to make it sound like they're the, they're the butchers, right? And the, well, the Muslims yeah. are like, these Christians came in and killed everybody. Like we, we were within our right to, to take the city back and kick them out. And so again, I think the answer is always somewhere in the middle, but I think what can't be denied is a lot of people died and, and Saladin, when we kind of get to him, you know, always had this in the back of his mind you know, with the correct facts, the incorrect facts, the story was what it was. And I think mm -hmm. that's the key point to, to take away of what happened, you know, from the first crusade. Well, I think that's a super important theme that again, if you're listening to this podcast, you're interested in history, always ask yourself who's writing it. Why would they be writing it in such a way, right? Like it's never just never take things at face value when it comes to historical facts, <laughs> because there's always an agenda. There's always a motivation. Um, but in terms of the slaughter, so the slaughter continued for the rest of the day. Muslims were indiscriminately killed. Uh, Jewish, uh, there were Jewish people uh, there who had taken refuge in the synagogue. Um, they died when it was burnt down by the Crusaders the following day. Yet, yeah, nevertheless, it's clear that some Muslims and Jews were able to survive by escaping the city or being taken prisoner to be ransomed. So we might be thinking like, why would, why would, you know, the crusaders pillage and destroy and plunder the city that they, you know, just crossed a massive area for to reclaim kind of seems a little backwards, right? When you, when you kind of hear it. Um, yeah. And it really does. And I think, I think something to keep in mind, right, is this isn't, like a, you know, it's not a vacation, it's not a holiday. And it's, they don't necessarily, a lot of the people that made the trips, they don't have like, oh, I'm going to be gone for a year and then come back to my job as a farmer or as whatever. And, and just pick up where I left off. Like some people are selling everything, giving up everything they have and ready to start a new life in Jerusalem. And part of this is like, I need to get something out of this. I want mm -hmm. a clean slate. And like, you see even the thing of like people who have done some ter pretty terrible things and are looking for some sort of forgiveness or healing or whatever it is, or essentially treating this as a, like as a violent pilgrimage in a sense Yep. to 
regain favor with God, but then at the same time, find a new patch of land and start a new life. And at the same time, like you've done all of this, you have not very much to, to start with. And now you have this massive city with slaves that you can sell places you can loot. It just all kind of cascades into that. And unless you have a commander or some sort of reason to not do that, especially at this time mm-hmm. in traveling this far, cause this is a, like, we're seeing even on the map here, it's thousands of kilometers for some of these people where you might've gone from England to France or France to Spain or France to, to Germany to, to fight. It just like, you could, you could put in your mind like, oh, I could turn around and go back home and be home in a few weeks. We're here. It's, this could be a year long plus trip for a lot of people to Easily. go. So yep. it's a totally different ball game. That you may not like make I it said, home from, right? Like there's like yeah. odds are you're probably going to die and probably like mm-hmm. you could die on the way there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you could yeah. run out of water, you could get sick. Yeah. Yeah. And especially a lot of them crossing the Mediterranean as well. Like it's not mm-hmm. always calm waters and stuff. So it's, it's just the, the level that these people have given up to get there. And again, it's the, it's the middle ages or the medieval era. Like it's known for being incredibly bloody and brutal. Um, so I think it's just kind of par for the course as, as terrible as it is, but you're right. I think that the level of holiness to that city still is a little strange that you, they wouldn't show maybe the level of restraint you would expect from, you know, if they were walking into the Vatican or something that had say that was taken over, right? Like, would it be the same? I'm not quite sure, but it is always kind of a thing where you have to stop and think, you oh, it's interesting. Like, this is the reason you're going there. You think you'd want to keep the city in pristine shape and, and keep it the way you want it. Cause this is, again, it's a city you're going to take and try to run. Um, but maybe they just wanted a clean slate. And again, maybe all those reasons kind of came together and people are just tired and sick of everything. But yeah, it's a question I don't think we'll ever really know the true answer to. Well, I, I think like, there's there's a there's a certain level of comparison that we could potentially do like when countries partake in modern warfare you know in our mm-hmm. era there are conventions by which they have to oblige right like i'm not too familiar with those conventions but like I, there are conventions that have been established to ensure that you know you're not you know using mustard gas because that was outlawed or you know there are conventions against torture well, depending on the country, you know, like that's obviously a very slippery slope. But even when we look back to this particular crusade, there are still conventions in place, right? Um, and the reason that, well, from the research that I was doing, and again, I, I credit the Reddit historian that posted this, um, the simple reason that they massacred and plundered and raped was because the city was taken by assault. And in such situations, the age-old rule was that the conqueror could kill freely, rape, and plunder the town for three days and three nights. So essentially, the crusaders were just, you know, following these cruel customs or conventions of war since time immemorial. Well, that is interesting. Like, like we talk about the Geneva Convention, and you can't do this, and you can't do this, where you have three days and three nights of free reign to do whatever you want, like kind of like a purge. And then everything's back to normal. And if you can survive the three days, you're, you're good, I guess. Like, yeah, it's an, again, a thousand years ago, but just the psychology a- of it's fascinating though. Right. Like yeah. to, to cap it, like, again, I think it goes back to your previous point. Like these are some long arduous journeys that are taking well over a year. 
and they're bloody, they're dirty, they're gruesome, they're tough. I couldn't imagine what that does to someone's psychology. Mm-hmm. I couldn't even begin to fathom. So to give someone like three days and there is that some like, like the, the purge example, you know, like there's mm-hmm. a weird kind of eerie parallel there that kind of gives me goosebumps when I say it out loud. But <laughs> I, I think there's a sentiment there that probably, you know, it'd be an interesting historical analysis to why exactly from a psychological perspective, they allowed it to happen or kind of put like a three day limit on it. Yeah. And I think too, like these journeys aren't, they weren't just like, well, we get up and we walk down the, the yellow brick road to Jerusalem. There's <laughs> different countries that have to cross through kingdoms and some are friendly, some aren't. They're fighting along the way as well, um, fighting off pirates in the Mediterranean as well. And it's not a, so yeah, it might just be that level, you know, of exhaustion and, and everything mm-hmm. kind of compiling. Plus, hey, we've got free reign, so we might as well do it. And the promises of riches and stuff um, and starting this new life i think yeah, like i think you said just all kind of compounds to this massive they gotta slaughter get it out. yeah like yeah. they gotta release right like it's kind of but it's 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 what happens clearly and it's mm-hmm. it's yeah yeah uh, but, but i think with that we can kind of turn to like the second crusade um so this was from 1147 to 1149 it was a military campaign that was organized by the pope and european nobles to to recapture uh, the city of Edessa and Mesopotamia. Um, these had fallen to the Seljuk Turks in 1144. And despite having an army of 60,000 people and the presence of two Western kings, the crusade was not successful in the Levant and caused further tension between the Byzantine Empire and the West. The Second Crusade also included significant p- campaigns in the Iberian Peninsula and the Baltic against the Muslim Moors and pagan Europeans, respectively. Both secondary campaigns were largely successful, but the main objective to the to free the Latin East from the threat of Muslim occupation remained unfulfilled. And so further crusades over the next two centuries would be called, but most of them would only have marginal success. The aftermath, you know, of the Second Crusade was a pretty serious blow to Byzantium's carefully constructed diplomatic alliances, especially with Conrad III, who was the German king who had led the crusades against the Normans. Uh, The Crusades and Conrad's absence from Europe actually provided a distraction, which allowed the Norman King Roger II of Sicily the freedom to attack and pillage uh, Corinth and Thebes in 1147 CE and ultimately damaged these internal East-West relations within like the, you know, the Holy Roman Empire. So again, you're seeing these kind of political affiliations, the infighting, the, the jostling and, and uh, kind of pivoting for, your own political strength within the empire as well. Right. So you have these internal tensions that are kind of being used. And I, you know, from the perspective of the crusades, obviously like we got to come together to fight these, you know, these, these Muslim occupying forces, but at the same time, people still have their own inherent and internal motivations for what they want to do for their own countries or regions. Right. Yeah, and I think it kind of, it's like a pretext to the splitting of the church to, you know, you have your Orthodox in the East and you're more Roman Catholic in the West and, which breaks into other things. And then the same time too, like you look at France, Spain, Holy Roman empire, a lot of these people from these countries, right? Like the diplomatic issues that get created with the Turks and the different Muslim states don't really affect them as directly as like the Byzantine empire, um, the Italians to an extent, um, because like they got this big buffer in between them. Right. So you can see like, 
we're going to go for glory. We're going to go and, and gain favor in such a way. And we're going to really annoy the Byzantines and the Greeks and people who, who are, have the, the Muslim forces right on their doorstep. Mm-hmm. And then it just kind of, again, like you can see that's where you know, a lot of the fracturing comes into place. And like really the only thing keeping these countries on the same side is belief in the same God, which again, is still a, just an odd, odd thing to really think about at the end of the day, because that otherwise like you would probably be at each other's throats in some fashion. But I just think it's a fascinating thing where, you know, they, they launch, keep launching these crusades and it's, it's damaging relations and essentially making them weaker and, and really an excuse for Muslim lands and and kingdoms to come together and, and actually fight a joint effort against, you know, these Christian occupiers and invaders. Yeah. And I think that's a great point that kind of lets us shift to the next part of the conversation, which is kind of happening in parallel about the points that I was just talking about, which is this kind of relationship between Nuruddin and Saladin and how he kind of, you know, comes to be a major player in, in this point of like the historical timeline. Yeah, I think that is a good a good segue. And let me uh, let me pull up here. Showing you this map earlier, I think is a great just kind of overview of what we're kind of dealing with when you were kind of talking about this is not a very accessible period in time, and just like how many like little things are going on. So this is a map of we'll call it the Middle East. So you have like modern day Saudi Arabia down here, Egypt on the uh, on the west side here. There's um, Byzantium and, and Constantinople kind of right there. And then you have modern-day Syria, Iraq, and then um, Iran over here. But just, like, look at the number of these different kingdoms. And I saw saw someone post this on Reddit, and some people were challenging the map creator, saying, like, who are these people again? And he's kind of pointing out that, well, they were existed for a little bit, but at, at least in around this time they were there. And then some people arguing that parts of the desert shouldn't really have any occupiers because it was basically no man's land. But this is just like a perfect example because we have the kingdom of Jerusalem here in the gray, but just like look at all of these other kingdoms where we kind of all bunch them together as, you know, Muslim lands. But really these are all independent, either independent to themselves or vassal states of other larger kingdoms. And there's really no sense of unification here. And I think that's probably part of the reason why the first crusade goes so successfully. And then as we'll see with Saladin, how, you know, the second crusade becomes a little bit more of a challenge as we don't look at the map in the same way of just having all of these little small kingdoms and caliphates and, and all of these small little areas kind of ruled by who really knows, um, you know, makes things a lot more difficult when you have 20 states coming together and, and fighting against a common enemy. So I think we can flip over to, to Saladin here. So I've got another picture. I just, I don't know where this picture comes from, but this is like the most classic picture of Saladin. And I don't know if that's exactly when you Google him, that's like the picture that comes up multiple times. Yeah. I like the kind of like a, the, the turban looks amazing. I'm not sure if that's the, the exact word for, for that at the time, but it looks pretty cool. And he just has this like kind of like ageless wonder sort of on him where like, you can tell he's, He's gone through some stuff, but he's so stoic in his thinking of just like, I'm not going to get over. Yeah. 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 I absolutely just love kind of that, that kind of like Marcus Aurelius sort of like, you know, when, when it comes down to it, like I'm going to get stuff done and I'm, and I'm going to be ruthless when I need to be, but I'm really going to think about it. And I might go back after and really reflect on everything that happened and, um, you know, kind of maybe, 
have some some ways of thinking about what happened in in the in a different light than maybe he would show externally and, and kind of have that internal struggle but again this is just an, an artist's perception of it but i think it kind of goes to um what we're going to talk about with um with saladin so what i'll do here is i'll pull up an, another map here because i think again it's just so important to see um how saladin kind of moves around the area and without talking through this through a map it's it's almost impossible to do but yeah. We can we can start by talking that he was born in uh, 1137 in, in modern day Iraq, um, so kind of up around where you see kind of Edessa and Aleppo. So there's a there's an interesting story where his father was um, helped defeat um, an army commanded by um, a, basically a kingdom coming out of Mosul, and the military governor of northern Mesopotamia was not happy that he did that and essentially kicked him out of um of their of their hometown and so kind of what happened was the rumor is saladin was born on the exact day that his father got kicked out so whether that's true or not it makes for a, a kind of a cool story that he was born and literally could not live in the house that he was born in and had to move right away definitely so, adds a dramatic effect and appeal <laughs> yeah i love it right so then what happens is saladin moves to damascus which is still the modern day capital of syria and we don't know too much about um, his childhood, but what we do find is there's stories of just him being incredibly inquisitive about his religion and being, you know, spending a lot of time studying the Islamic faith. And that really is where he spends, you know, a lot of just like his, his studies. And I think that makes sense for the time, uh, especially being religion being such a key point. He definitely takes this, this love for, for his religion and, and knows it um, quite well at a very young age. But what kind of happens um, throughout that time is he's also being pushed around in political spheres, seeing his father and his uncle um, kind of work through the different political areas and, and understand kind of how all of that works and being kind of around it, which I think is a key point um, to where he uh, he kind of can start to grow and become more of, a, of the person that he is. So the one thing that's key here is there his father and his uncle are kind of all report into um, a man named Nuruddin who has a bunch of land kind of in Syria in Northern Iraq, um, kind of into like modern day Jordan a little bit. And they basically are working under him and he sends his uncle and Saladin on a mission to, to Egypt. And so what happens here is the Egyptians are running into a bit of a power struggle. There's, they're the leader of the caliphate at the time, the Fatimid caliphate, are, are running into some issues with kind of keeping everything under control. So they send Nuruddin and his and Saladin as well. So sorry, they didn't do not send Nuruddin sends Saladin's uncle and Saladin to to kind of get things under control. And so they they go into to Egypt and they get things under control. They they put down some some uh, some unrest and some external invaders that are kind of poking around. But the key thing here is. They fix it, but they don't leave. They just stay there. And this is where Nuruddin, I think, is he knew exactly what he was doing from the beginning. Um, the the caliphate that was kind of run there was not very popular. I believe that one of the differences was um, difference between Sunni Sunni Islam and Shia Islam. I believe the people of Egypt at the time were Sunni and the leaders were Shia, where Saladin and his uncle are, are Sunni Islam. So it kind of keeps 
brings everything kind of together and they could kind of see them coming in as, oh, kind of keeping the same type of um, faith together. So they're kind of taking control slowly of Egypt. They're kind of just hanging out, um, not really leaving. But then something kind of interesting happens. And this is where Saladin's uncle um, suddenly passes away. Now, this is where we love, got to love historical um, scholars and, and historians on, on how they think about things and what the, the populist thought at the time was. Saladin's uncle was just a very fat guy, very overweight, especially for the time, which is, you know, when food is very scarce, seeing a very overweight person is, isn't something you see all the time. And so instead of people saying, oh, he died of a heart attack because he was, you know, had a bad lifestyle and was eating too much, it was, oh, no, that very night he just ate way too much and then just died because of the results, which I kind of love, right? It's, let's, let's put a little bit of a, we don't really know how the human body works. So if you, if you probably just ate too much that night and then that was it. Couldn't handle it. Couldn't digest. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I think this starts the theme for Saladin, which we'll see is, you know, all these leaders that we talk about in, in this podcast, there's always a level of luck in some fashion that either always, puts, puts them yeah. in the possession, position, right, where they're going to be successful or it accelerates maybe the inevitable or maybe something that may not have come to pass. But this is where we'll start to see this theme of people around Saladin who are not really getting in his way, but maybe slowing up his progress or where he would kind of have to play second fiddle to conveniently die. Um, no sense of like foul play or anything. It's just natural causes and, and things happen. So Saladin is now essentially in charge of Egypt from the, um, the view of Nuruddin. But the issue here is Egypt is still not fully consolidated under his control. So he takes about three years fighting off enemies within Egypt. And you have to remember too, the crusaders are looking upon us and saying, okay, well, if Nuruddin is quite powerful in Syria and Iraq, if we have someone who's directly loyal to him in charge of Egypt, that's kind of two fronts that we have to deal with. So they're putting in, um, you know, supporting people within Egypt who would not be loyal to Nuruddin, trying to get Saladin to not have full control. But he ends up taking about three years um, to strengthen his position and, and become, you know, the ruler of Egypt, and but still being a vassal of, um, of Nuruddin. And this is where maybe Nuruddin starts to realize what he's actually done here. Saladin has become incredibly powerful, incredibly popular because of his ability to bring people and unify people together and his devout love for his religion. People really start to respect him. And now he's in charge of the most wealthy country in all of the Mediterranean. And, and Egypt has historically always been this is you have the Nile, which brings, they say the Nile brings life. There's so much grain and food coming out of Egypt. There's so much trade that comes through, you know, Alexandria along the Nile through the Red Sea. Um, coming across from the Middle East, from North Africa. Um, this is a very, very wealthy state. And Saladin has access to all of this wealth. And so Nuruddin starts to, to realize that this is a bit of a threat to him. And so what he does is he kind of, kind of gives, asks Saladin some questions on like kind of what's going on and, and kind of wants him to kind of, I don't know if he wants him to come back, but he's not happy with the way things are going. So he actually puts an army together there's some debate on what he was actually going to do with it. Was he actually going to invade Egypt and forcefully kick Saladin out? Or was this just a threat to say, Hey, remember who you ultimately report into and maybe Saladin would have kind of backed down, but here comes the luck again, just as Nuruddin's ready to set off, he dies. And so now 
Saladin doesn't have anybody reports to. He's his own free man. Do we know why he but, died? Was it like... It it didn't didn't uncover that he was getting up there in age, and I think it was like yeah, yeah. classic, like he's in his forties and his fifties in the middle ages, and yeah, up, up there in age is like yeah. forty five. <laughs> exactly right, it, especially at that time, right? Like you could catch a cold and that's it, yeah, or that's it. bacterial infection. There's no antibiotics, um, so he does die and gives gives Saladin this essential, almost free reign to do what he wants. But there's an issue here, so Saladin now he's He's kind of consolidated his hold along Egypt. He's done some work, as you can see, kind of here along Egypt, along you know the southern parts of Egypt, along the Red Sea, and along the um, eastern coast of the Red Sea and western part of Arabia. He's taken these lands and put them under his protection. And this key part here along the eastern side of the Red Sea is very important because this is where you'll see some very holy cities um, in the Islamic world, like Medina, for example. And this is where a lot of Muslim um, pilgrims would travel to. So they'd be coming from northern Iraq and Syria, Egypt, and traveling to these areas. So basically what Saladin does is he kind of has this area around the Red Sea that he kind of keeps under his um, protection um, because he's, again, such a devout Muslim and understands the fact of if he wants to unify, he needs to bring these holy places under his control and under his protection ultimately. But this is where Saladin kind of gets into a problem because he's, he has Egypt, he has these areas around Arabia and the Red Sea, but Syria, and we can kind of see where his motion kind of comes in here. Like he takes um, uh, Cairo in 71 and takes him till about 74 to get over to Damascus and then even up to 83 until he takes Aleppo. And so one of the challenges here is Nur ad-Din's son has essentially taken over Syria and there's kind of a, a custom in Islamic rule where you basically can't overthrow or, or take land that previously belonged to your master. And so now Saladin's in a weird spot because he wants to consolidate all this space, but what can he actually do? Can he, he can't really do this because he's, he's struggling with the fact that he needs to unify this land under, you know, we are one Muslim state. We are Muslims fighting back against these Christian invaders. But if he starts breaking rules within his faith, People are going to use that against them. And so he, again, is very smart about that. And so what he does is he just waits. He waits a few years, make sure Egypt is running well, make sure the pilgrimage sites are doing well. And then eventually the Emir of Damascus, which is basically like a, a lord or some sort of, um, not quite a king, but um, basically a ruler. And he says, hey, I'm, I'm running into some issues with the Crusaders. They're harassing my lands. I need some help. Saladin, will you come help me? And he goes, great. This is exactly what I need. This is the excuse. Um, so he marches over, helps the Emir of Damascus um, fight off the uh, the Crusaders and does kind of the same thing, just stays, consolidates some power around there. And then eventually people realize, oh, this guy's so powerful. Um, it wasn't, you know, a very bloody way to take things over, but he just needed that excuse to, to march in there and and kind of consolidate his his power around um, around Damascus. So now... You have Saladin basically running Egypt and a good chunk of Syria, um, which essentially surrounds the, the kingdom of Jerusalem and a lot of uh, those crusader states. And so he's now at this point where he has Syria and Egypt, but there's people in northern Iraq and Syria who are starting to look at this. Um, these are Muslims who are as another kingdom. So I think it's the, the Zengids is, again, um, are looking at this and going, okay, this guy's getting too powerful. He's coming for us next. 
let's make the first move. So they actually attack Saladin. And so after two decisive battles, Saladin is victorious and now has the freedom to, to march into Aleppo and to, to take Mosul and, and those areas that we kind of see at the top of the screen. This is where we see Saladin's first act of kindness and that theme of being the merciful man that he was, is there was prisoners of war that were captured. He, not only did he not execute them, he freed them and gave them gifts because he realized I'm going to need these guys long-term. They're fighting for their king who I don't like and have now deposed. But at the same time, I don't, you know, I don't need to, to like, what would, what would killing these people do? What would killing my fellow Muslims do? This is not what I'm here for. And so that was kind of something that was interesting. And then he also didn't keep any of the loot that was taken from the battles. He gave it to all of his men. And the rumor was he just took nothing, nothing for himself. He just gave it out to all of his men and all of his soldiers. And so it's this very, just like selflessness of Saladin that just keeps coming up and up as we start to read about him. So as he does all of this, we can, you can start to see he has this level of being very selfless and being able to kind of, um, consolidate, um, consolidate his power. And now he's at a point where he's starting to look at the crusaders kingdoms and Jerusalem and the ultimate goal of, of bringing that back. Um, into Muslim hands. And so what kind of kicks off is you can, as we were talking about those pilgrimage sites, they do cross near crusader lands. And there was a, a man named Reynal of Chatillon, and he was known for just being an all around pretty terrible person. There was these pretty much, I guess, agreements between the Muslims and Christians that like pilgrimage routes were off limits. We need to let our pilgrims move freely. And there should be no violence against them. But Reynal, being the man that he was, saw an opportunity of, well, these are probably going to be undefended convoys, or they might be very weak, and I can just pillage them and take whatever I want. And so he starts doing this over and over again. He's raiding into different areas along the pilgrimage sites, moving into Arabia, going along the Red Sea, um, trying to, to take whatever he can. And that is really the one of the key points that Saladin goes, all right, well, you guys have broken the most important thing here. And our pilgrims are now at risk and he can kind of see that this is a great opportunity now to, to start taking shots at, um, the kingdom of Jerusalem. So he starts to take, um, some different areas along the kingdom of Jerusalem, taking different, taking like different forts and different castles, um, which then brings everything, uh, up to the battle of Hatton, which we can see right here, which kind of is just North of Jerusalem. So one thing I'm going to show here is just a few pictures of what different types of soldiers and kind of different sorts of fighters we would be seeing in um, a battle between Saladin uh, and the Crusaders. And I think it's just, it's very telling um, to kind of see the, the differences here. So on the left here, we kind of have a Crusader Knight. So you can see very heavily shielded, heavy armor. Whereas we look on the other side here, as we see a Muslim um, skirmisher, who's a, an archer on a horse. And so kind of the, the goal here of, of the man on the horse is to not necessarily kill the knight who's very heavily armored, but harass him, annoy him, bring down his morale. And so that's a key point when we look at the actual battle itself. So the battle begins with essentially Saladin setting some bait. He attacks a, a, a small city outside of Jerusalem. And what he does is he basically baits the crusaders into marching outside of the city of Jerusalem through the desert in like ridiculously hot weather, like 40 degrees in the middle of the day. It's like July, like again, 
not a smart decision in like very heavy armor like this. And so the key thing in a battle like this is moving from water source to water source. And so what Saladin does is he waits until the Crusaders are in a spot where there is no water and he essentially surrounds them. He starts lighting fires around in the brush. And so the smoke will go downwind and essentially suffocate him. And his, um, his archers that are on horseback are consistently just harassing the, uh, the Crusaders. And this goes on for hours and even days where they're sitting there with no water and Saladin plays as well. He just waits and he just keeps harassing them and harassing them, and harassing them until his time is right to, to collapse in and essentially destroy an entire, um, crusader army. And there's an interesting thing that happens here. So you have, um, Guy of Lusignan, who is basically the, the king of Jerusalem at the time. And then you have, uh, Reynal Chatillon, who's in the battle as well. And they both get captured and brought in front of Saladin. And there's a story where Saladin sees uh, Guy of Lusignan. He offers him either some water or some like ice or something like that to quench his mm -hmm. thirst. And then Guy, he takes a drink and then he hands the water to Reynal. And then Saladin kind of puts his hand up and he just basically said, I want everyone to see that I did not offer Reynal um, anything. This was Guy offered it to him. And then people are kind of looking at each other like, what does that mean? And basically... Guy's expecting to be executed, but he looks at Saladin and Saladin says to him, it is not the want of kings to kill kings, but that man had transgressed all bounds and therefore I must treat him thus. And then they essentially kills Reynald of Sheltion, slits his throat in front of, in front of Guy. And, and then, yeah, it's so good. like it's so this good. level of honor, right? Of I'm going to let you go. You're a king. You are fighting for your people. I understand why you're doing it, but this guy was the worst of the worst. He was killing innocent people. He was killing my people. I cannot let him survive. And so this is where I think we see a great balance for Saladin, right? It's this level of needing to be essentially ruthless when he needs to be. He also, at the end of this battle, executes a few thousand crusader knights, which again, not a very nice thing to do. But at the end of the day, if you're trying to consolidate power, these are men who people will flock to and will, who are typically very wealthy as well, who could come back and, and really put some sort of threat towards all the work that he's done. And so now the, the path to Jerusalem is open and it's just really a matter of time until um, it becomes under Saladin's control. So I think Richie, maybe that's a, a good point for us to kind of pivot and just talk about, you know, the actual decision itself and, you know, what, what really transgressed when, when Saladin marches up to this, the gates of Jerusalem. Yeah. So I'm just looking at my notes right now. So after the battle of Hatton, um he kind of gets to go ahead you know he has now it's kind of open season on um, let's 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 recapture jerusalem which happens on october 2nd 1187 um he does it quite easily and the part that you know kind of pushed us to to open up this conversation and look at this particular decision is because when saladin reclaims jerusalem he doesn't do what the crusaders did um, he doesn't, you know, there's no full frontal plundering, killing, mass execution. Quite the contrary, um, he allows Latin Christians who could afford to buy their freedom to buy their freedom. He frees slaves, which almost caused a crash in the Middle Eastern slave market, which is absolutely crazy. And Eastern Christians were permitted to remain in Jerusalem as a protected minority group versus, you know, what we saw with the Crusaders, which, you know, getting to that 
age old, you know, at, at the time that convention of three days, three nights of just plundering, right. killing, do what you got to do, you know, to get it out of your system type deal. Mm-hmm. You see this polarity with Saladin to just not do that. And I, I think like, what, what does that say about him? Why, why would someone do that after the, mm-hmm. you know, like there's a reason we're still talking about what the crusaders did in Jerusalem, right? Like mm-hmm. we're talking about it today in 2022. So I'm sure as the, you know, the unifier of Islam at this time, that story has probably been shared, you know, dozens of times, hundreds of times in, in his communities that he's heard about what the crusaders did, crusaders did to his people. And he still has the wherewithal and, you know, the kindness to not kind of be a, uh, approach it from like a tit to, uh you know like a tit for tat kind of kind of approach mm-hmm. they had full reign right no one was yeah. no one would have batted an eye so yeah all right no. well, eye for an eye right like give your guys three days and three nights give them four days who cares like you got to get revenge but i think it's twofold i think it's valid and again this is a theme that just keeps coming up is like so committed to their goal um is like Saladin wants to unify the Islamic world, but he also wants the Christians to see them in a much more positive light. And I think part of this is, well, we're better than you because we didn't massacre this entire city. And this is how great our religion is, is because we have the restraint that you guys didn't have. And I think that's going through his mind. There's also the level two of the defenders of Jerusalem threatened to burn down the holy sites of Islam and I'm sure that played a hand because again, his religion is the most important thing to him. And then at the end of the day, like, it's just, it, it backs up his nature. He's not a ruthless person. He has a respect for his enemies. He understands that this is more of a transaction more than, than really a, you know, a violent act, which is kind of a strange way to look at it. Like winning mm-hmm. in Hatton was just had to be done. I don't really care who's on the other side. I just get everybody out of the way. Who's a threat and I move on and, I don't really need to take any extra action for whatever reasons those might be. So yeah, it's just, it's just, I think it compounds a few different things, but at the end of the day, it's in his nature and he definitely wasn't a man of his time. I think he's quite different um, compared to, Uh, I I think that's a good point, right? I think there's this really interesting juxtaposition that kind of comes out when you look at Saladin and you look at the broader context of what's going on and historically what's kind of been accepted, um, you know, in terms of religious fervor and religious violence, you know, which always kind of, it's a weird phrase, right? Like religious violence. It's something that when I was doing research kind of just kept coming up, you know, in the readings and it's hard to kind of square that because you don't necessarily consider religious violence as this, vehicle for spreading a message that typically is one of peace you know what i mean but mm-hmm. um how can groups be motivated by religion something we often you know naively see as you know peaceful and pacifist and which it, it which it is you know in in, in some in, in many forms how could they commit such atrocities and i think it's like regardless of whatever particular religion we're looking at it's it's easier to justify violence when it's often centered around this idea of the other and painting them as agents of violence, which allows you to justify your violence as really a response, as a means to an end mm-hmm. to stop the other from committing, 
even worse violence, right? That's why it's so easy to, you know, like the, the I think the, the references that I saw when I was doing research for this particular episode was, you know, barbarian came up a lot, the Islamic barbarian. Mm -hmm. So when you paint that portrait, you know, from the, from the crusaders perspective, they must feel justified when we're protecting our Christian land from these Islamic invaders and barbarians, who knows what they're going to do to our people and to our followers. But then you see Saladin and it's like, okay, well, this guy's is, is his examples of kindness are just, you know, they're awe inspiring. Like they're literally awe inspiring relative to what we're talking about now. And I had, I wrote a couple uh, examples and I think you have some too, Paul, but mm -hmm. So it's like when the king of Jerusalem fell ill, Saladin offered his assistance, his personal physician to help him. Uh, <laughs> he would offer prisoners of war comfortable cushions to sit on in ice water. Um, in the wake of a famous battle with Richard the Lionheart, um, he offered not only his personal doctor, but also a new horse. Um, <laughs> he never broke a treaty, um, although crusaders were forced to break alliances because of top-down orders. Saladin never really... There, there were very, I didn't find any historical kind of uh, facts about him breaking alliances. Uh, Sal did not make a practice of slaughtering the women and children in the cities he captured, which was not the, a practice followed by the Crusaders. Instead, he <laughs> would give them food and money and promise them safe passage to get home. Um, it's, it's clear to me, at least from what I've read, um, that he valued human life. Christian and Muslim alike, which again, huge differentiator from what we typically think of when we think crusaders, at least me personally, I, mm -hmm. when I think crusades, I think almost no value of life is considered for someone who has a different religion than you. Mm -hmm. And obviously he's ambitious, you know, and interested in unification and conquest, but he did so in a way where he was focused on preserving life in all forms. And he took pains to prevent unnecessary death on both his men and his enemies, which is just like, he sounds like a modern day leader, you know what I mm -hmm. mean? Like he doesn't sound like a leader from this particular era, which again, goes back to our previous point about being, <laughs> you know, violent, gruesome, you know, just a, horrible in terms of the violence that we often kind of denote for this particular period of time. Yeah. It's, it's a different type of, again, it's, he's built differently and it's, yeah. Like it's the the thing that I absolutely love is it's kind of like a Machiavellian look at things. Like we'd rather be loved or feared. He managed yeah. to do both in this sense. And I, I don't think there's many leaders who can be loved by their enemies, but also feared at the same time, because why fear him? Because he can bring together all of these fractured Muslim states together under one banner and win battles. But you also love him because he respects his enemies as much as maybe he respects his own men in some, some senses. And he does like these ridiculous things that are so nice and so kind. Like, again, it's it kind of breaks down that mold of you don't have to be loved. You don't have to be feared. You can be both. And it's, it's going to be interesting as we go through this podcast and we look at more leaders. Like I think, you know, do they, do they pass the Saladin test? Were they able to accomplish both? <laughs> And I don't think many have, like, I can't, I'm just thinking in my head right now, like nobody really pops to mind. I'm sure we'll find some, but he really was unique. And I, I love this quote here. It was by a, a French um, historian from the seventies. So obviously take that for, for what it is. And it's, you know, it's, it is a very beautifully written quote and I, you know, it's got its, its flavor to it, but it basically describing Saladin, it says he was one of those men 
who, who is always absorbed in some urgent business, incapable of thinking of themselves, even in a manner of such necessary and legitimate satisfaction as the great pilgrimage. In fact, he never had any possessions because he coveted none. Never, he never felt that he needed to be greater than he actually was. And I think that sets it perfectly. Like he never felt any level of insecurity, I think is the key point that comes to me here. Like he doesn't think like, I need to do this for glory. I need to do this to make me rich. I need to do this to make me powerful because I feel inadequate in some way. He was just so, just like, this is the thing I need to unify my religion and I need to take back Jerusalem and I need to make, you know, kick the crusaders out of, of our lands. That's it. That's enough for him. He doesn't need any of that extra stuff. And I think it's just the kind of the mindset of just like being so devoted to some sort of path and not faltering from it. And then like, it's a great thing here. Just <laughs> I want to make sure we get to it was the rumor was he was so ridiculously generous, generous when he died around the end of the third crusade. Um, there was only 37 gold coins in the treasury <laughs> when, when they, when they went to look because he was just giving people gifts all the time and doing all of these things, which I think maybe one thing you could say about Saladin was he wasn't trying to build an empire, maybe because he had no ego. He didn't care that like, you know, the, the Ubid caliphate would run forever. It was more just get this done because I don't think he really set up his, um, his sons and his, his family to really rule for very much longer. And they really didn't the, I think it was like another 70 or 80 years until things all kind of got fractured. Um, but again, it was one, one thing that he wanted to do and he just went and did it and didn't really care about like legacy or anything like that. It was just, let's get it done and, and call it a day. Yeah. That I think is such an interesting archetype for a leader, right? Like he doesn't value material possessions or items. What do you do with a guy like that? You can't buy him off. You can't bribe him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like what he, he doesn't care about like 30, 37 gold coins. He obviously doesn't care about money. You know, mm -hmm. he doesn't, he, he's not operating like how most people operate, which, you know, there's, there's varying degrees of it. But I think when we look at decisions, we look at leaders who make those decisions, like unification, like that's a theme that mm -hmm. seems to come out a lot so far, very early in our podcast journey that mm -hmm. a lot of leaders make decisions about unification, bringing people together, creating a sense of community along lines that can, you know, cut across vast geographical regions. Right. I think mm -hmm. this is a very interesting theme that I, I wouldn't necessarily, you know, have picked out right out of the gate, even as someone who studied history, but I think mm -hmm. it's definitely coming to light as one of those themes. And I think Saladin is, is a, is a great example of that. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think there's a level two of what, it, you know, we talk about unification and to in my eyes, it was always some sort of violent conquest of unifying this geographic area. But I think we've seen that it's, I don't think it's, that's definitely not the norm. I don't think it's unifying people under some sort of common cause. And I think to your point of sense of community and, and bringing people together for some sort of purpose is really where these leaders have been successful more than the more militaristic ones, you know, that have taken land for riches and glory. Um, this is quite different. So yeah, Saladin, I think he, he's built a bit differently. He's someone who I think we should all look up to on how do you, how do you be loved and essentially feared at the same time. And just, there's nothing wrong with being a nice guy. 
Nice guys definitely <laughs> don't finish last in this situation. In this situation, 100%. Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, I think that's probably a good place to, to wrap up and just kind of, you know, tip our hat to, to Saladin and, and I think just kind of keep our eye out for the two of us on, is there anybody who will kind of come to this level of hitting it from both sides in terms of being ridiculously successful, but being, you know, an overall just great person and generous person. And I think that'll be a fun little theme for us to play with as we continue on the journey of learning about some different leaders. 100%. I think the benchmark's been set pretty high. Um, so oh, yeah. uh, we'll see what happens in the next couple episodes. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the History in Motion podcast. We appreciate your support. And if you're a fan of what you heard, please like, subscribe, and share. And we'll see you next time.